Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Is religion good for us or not? I ask that question honestly. Even though my business is religion, I'm a Presbyterian minister, I can see both the good and bad results of religious practice. Theologian H. Richard Niebuhr said that religion makes good people better and bad people worse. That sounds true. More and more we hear voices of those critical of religion. Christopher Hitchens, who died in 2011, wrote a book entitled God is Not Good, How Religion Poisons Everything. In it, he said, Organized religion is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, and bigotry, invested in ignorance, and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women, and coercive toward children. I've seen that. I see elements of that in my own religious denomination. It would be a mistake for those of us who consider themselves religious to dismiss Hitchens or to be defensive. The religious have a lot to answer for. It is crucial for those of us who are religious to listen to the religious critics. We should read Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and others. If I can put it so strongly, to do so is our salvation. Religion has become a dark force. If humanity is going to survive the crises we are facing, we will need, in the words of Lincoln, to be touched by the better angels of our nature. We will need religion to be the ally of the good and not its enemy. I have also seen goodness, peacefulness, concern for justice, open-minded inquiry, and care for the least of these within organized religion. While much of religion caters to the powerful, providing them with cover and sanction, there have been those who, from the vantage point of religion, have provided truthful and courageous resistance. Religion makes good people better and bad people worse. Rather than simply argue about whether or not religion is good or bad, it might be helpful to be specific. Charles Kimball, professor and director of religious studies at the University of Oklahoma, has written that religion is arguably the most powerful and pervasive force in society. In 2002, he wrote a book entitled, When Religion Becomes Evil. In it, he outlined five characteristics or signs of religious evil. Those five signs are absolute truth claims, blind obedience, establishing the ideal time, the end justifies any means, and declaring holy war. When we see one or more of these five characteristics taking hold in a religion, we should be wary. When the Bible or other sacred text is used to justify discrimination or to deny scientific theories, religion is not a force for good. Superstition and meanness are not virtues. I sympathize with John Lennon. Imagine no religion. The sober fact is that religion is not going to end, at least in the foreseeable future. Rather than seek to end it, perhaps we might mend it. It lifts my spirits when I see people from different religious traditions learning about each other, cooperating on common projects, discovering what they hold together, and treating one another with respect. At my first congregation in northern New York, it was a sleepy village in the heart of dairy country, 50 miles from the Canadian border. There was a large Mennonite population, and many people could claim ancestry to four or five generations, farming the same piece of fertile ground. Almost everyone was of European heritage, and every religious institution was a Christian one, whether Protestant or Catholic. 
If people expressed religious faith, the faith expressed was Christian. No one seemed to object to the nativity scene at the public park in front of the Civil War monument. The school held a Christmas concert filled with Christian religious music with perhaps one song celebrating Hanukkah. Lowville, New York was and is a village about as Christian as you can find anywhere. Well, that isn't exactly true. When you looked a little closer, more diversity began to reveal itself. A Muslim family from Egypt made its home in Lowville, as did several Jewish families. When you ordered dinner to go from the Chinese restaurant, you could enjoy hearing the family members speak to one another in their native language, and I'm certain they practiced their native religion at home. The most noticeable diversity could be found at the hospital and the mental health center, among the physicians and psychiatrists. Many of them were from countries such as India and Pakistan, and they, with their families, added cultural and religious flavor to the casserole. One doctor who became a friend of mine was a Jain. I had never before heard of Jainism, even though it's a religious tradition that predates Christianity by six centuries. His wife was Roman Catholic. He told me that they had a sacred space set up in their home in which each had placed icons, statues, and other symbols of their respective faiths. With a big smile, he assured me, all of our gods get along wonderfully. Implied in that statement is, so do we. Harvard professor Diana Eck wrote a book in 2001 entitled, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country Has Become the World's Most Religiously Diverse Nation. Eck points out that there are twice as many Muslims in America as Presbyterians, about six million. We are already the most religiously diverse nation in the world. Most Americans have no idea the extent of this diversity and the fact that it is just beginning. Eck believes that religious and cultural diversity will be one of the major social issues America will face this century. No longer do we have to go to Kyoto, Calcutta, or Mecca to meet Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. We can find practitioners of these faiths and many others in such exotic places as Lowville, New York, and Johnson City, Tennessee. Eck credits the explosion of this diversity in part to the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, signed by President Lyndon Johnson, that ended the racist immigration policy toward Asians. Our diversity is also due in a major way to our nation's creed, which is to protect and ensure the free exercise of religion. The questions for America at this juncture are serious ones. How will we treat our neighbors? Will we regard this rich religious diversity as a strength, a deep well of spiritual blessing, or out of fear, will we regard religious diversity as a threat and a danger to, quote, our way of life? As a Christian, my faith compels me to choose hospitality. How are we to respond to the foreigner and the sojourner and the alien in the land with justice, kindness, and mercy? We welcome the stranger and make her feel at home. Why? Because at one time, we all were strangers in the land. In so doing, we may discover, as I have, that our faith will not be compromised by learning the wisdom from people who practice other religions, like my Jane friend from Lowville. On the contrary, our faith and our nation will be enriched. The United Religions Initiative is an organization that deserves our support. This worldwide organization has local chapters or cooperation circles all over, including one for the Tri-Cities. 
This is the preamble for the United Religions Initiative. We, people of diverse religions, spiritual expressions, and indigenous traditions throughout the world, hereby establish the United Religions Initiative to promote enduring daily interfaith cooperation, to end religiously motivated violence, and to create cultures of peace, justice, and healing for the earth and all living beings. We respect the uniqueness of each tradition and differences of practice or belief. We value voices that respect others and believe that sharing our values and wisdom can lead us to act for the good of all. My guest on Religion for Life is Sandy Weston. Sandy Weston served as the Regional Coordinator of United Religions Initiative, or URI, from July 2009 through December 2011. So how did United Religions Initiative get started? Ha. Well, as usual, there was one person who had an audacious idea. But it was actually a, um, a spin-off, an accidental spin-off from the United Nations. The United Nations, as you might know, was formed in 1945, which happens to be the year I was formed. That's the year I was born. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, the Bishop of California was a Bishop uh, William Swing, Archbishop William Swing. Take that back, not Archbishop, Bishop Will, Bishop Swing, of the Episcopal Church. And he had many friends in the United Nations, and they said, well, we want to hold the 50th anniversary of the United Nations charter signing in the place where it was originally signed, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. Well, Bishop Swing was the head of Grace Cathedral at that time. And so they called him and they said, can we come, Bill? Can we, uh, you know, hold the event there? It's, it's coming up next year. And he said, that sounds like a dandy idea. He said, they said, well, okay, fine. We'll bring the nations of the world to that event. And could you please bring the religions of the world to that event? And Bill said, okay, I'm not doing anything next Saturday. I'll, I'll, I'll give him <laughs> a call. Bring the religions of the world to an event. Yeah, we right. can do that, uh, in, in do that the, over the weekend. Yeah. Do that even over a year he spent traveling the world, meeting with the heads of major religions, everybody from the Pope to the Dalai Lama to you name mm. it, saying, this is what's happening. You have an opportunity here. Would you join us? Would you come with your colleagues, your brethren, into a place that is sacred to all? Um, gee, I'm not sure we can manage that. Uh, I think my schedule's pretty full. Uh, check with my secretary, but I'm not sure. No, well, it's a good idea, Bill. Really a good idea. I, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to be able to work at my schedule. Well, that kind of resistance, agreement, but not total alignment. He met with time and time and time again. And he finally said, you know, maybe we need to take a whole different direction in this. Let's, instead of going from the top down, let's go from the bottom up. And so he saw that it needed to be a grassroots movement. And so he put out the word to people who were just like you and me and said, would you be interested in supporting something that would bring the religions of the world into cooperation and conversation with one another. That's all it was really about in the beginning. They didn't even have a name for it for several years. This was in the late 1990s. And by 2000, there was enough agreement at the grassroots level to hold a 
a charter signing, uh, a, an event in which they could agree on certain principles, certain ideas, which were beyond what had ever been done before, really, as far as anyone knew, because it was about mutual respect among the faiths of the world. It took years to hammer out the wording of those principles, years. But by 2000, they were ready to step up in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and sign the charter. And so that's what they signed the charter in mm -hmm. 2000. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly, fairly recent movement. Just past its 10th anniversary. URI. Yeah, just 11th, actually. Okay. And so they, they started the charter, and you have um, in different areas of the country and around the world uh, different groups or cooperation circles. Oh, it's kind of like mushroomed. We have formed eight regions, seven of them geographic around the world. North America is one region. All of the United States and Canada is considered North America. And you are the director of the North American region. Is I'm that the, right? The coordinator, the, the coordinator. called the regional coordinator, which is a, a global staff position with United Religions Initiative. Which is pretty impressive that it's right here in Johnson City. <laughs> it's here because I wanted to live because in Johnson this was City. His home. Okay. <laughs> I moved here specifically to go to ETSU and to be part of the storytelling and all the wonderful things that happen in, in Northeast Tennessee. And I can literally live any place on the continent that I choose to and do my work. But uh, I, I chose Tennessee. So, yes, we have the North American Regional Office of Tennessee here in my home and the official address here on State of Franklin Road. Okay. And then how many, how many cooperation circles are there then in the United States? In the United States and Canada, because, again, I count Canada. that as one region, right now we have about 48, which is not very many when you consider that that's less than 10% of the world's list of cooperation circles. The cooperation circles are local organizations or individual groups that consist of at least seven persons who among them represent at least three different faith traditions. They decide that they want to be part of the URI family globally, and they apply to become a cooperation circle, and more often than not, they are granted that option. As a cooperation circle, they're then connected with, and in a, a filial relationship, all the other cooperation circles in the world, and they have access to sharing ideas among themselves. And these circles decide for themselves the kinds of things they want to do. They know the, the local circle in Johnson City mm -hmm. um, has a Thanksgiving dinner and uh, once per year in which they talk with the, the different religious groups around. Uh, we'll, we'll meet together and, and uh, sh share their ideas, share some rituals together. And some other, and we have also planted uh, the Peace Pole Just last at year. Carver Park, mm -hmm. International Peace Pole, which is also related to URI, but that's a, a different it's just a. It's different, but it's related. It's in some something way. we're in agreement with, and all of those different kinds of things that cooperation circles do are in keeping with Bishop Swing's original vision, which is a grassroots up organization. Because every one of those cooperation circles has the right to make autonomous decisions about who it is and what it chooses to do within certain boundaries, of course, of some required by the governments of the world, such as thou shalt not be an advocate for a political upheaval. <laughs> we don't do political things in United Religions Initiative. We're about respect. But within the uh, choice of each um, actually within the rights of each cooperation circle is the autonomous decision-making about what they stand for, who they choose to include in their conversations, and what actions they choose to take. This is Religion for Life. 
I'm John Shuck. I'm speaking with Sandy Weston, who is the coordinator of North American chapter of uh, United Religions Initiative, and telling us stories about um, religions overcoming boundaries and uniting together, finding their common purpose. Oftentimes, uh, we think of religion in terms of competition, perhaps, or or, of truth and holding on to that truth. And and while that might be a value, that also can be destructive when that becomes an absolute truth. I was thinking of a book published a few years ago by Charles Kimball called When Religion Becomes Evil. <laughs> and uh, and that book, he talked about a number of different things to watch, if there's like an appointed end time, or if there's a uh, an absolute authority, or or getting your message out by any means necessary. That then when, when that happens, that's when religions become destructive. And so the purpose of United Religions Initiative is to um, dismantle that, perhaps, maybe I'm speaking ahead, but it seems to be that, and find which is really perhaps in common about our religion, or what is the highest values that we have. What is our highest common denominator? That's a good way to put it. It's not really a new idea. Jainism, which is one of the ancient uh, religious traditions of the world, speaks of three primary principles. Ahimsa, which is nonviolence, thou shalt not be violent with one another, or even towards animals or insects in Jainism, that is very important. There is also a second principle, a respect for all philosophies, with the sense that regardless of the exact decisions made about what is true, there is a reaching for an understanding of that which is unknowable in all philosophies, and therefore that reaching itself should be respected. And the third principle of Jainism, non-attachment, non-possession, a sense of releasing ego, and not just the opposite of greed. All of these are designed to build a world of greater peace and tolerance. And by the way, those ideas surface in so many different religions of the world. We even have them embodied in the what we call in Christianity uh, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that basic idea is there in many different faiths over the world. Yeah, the golden rule. That's uh, in fact um, a number of you passed. You gave me a sheet here that says the golden rule. I think I'm seeing at least ten, maybe more, of different religions who have a a sense of that um, that truth said in their own way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly do. Such as Zoroastrianism, which we don't hear of very much. Do not do unto others whatever is injurious to yourself. Or Buddhism, treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Those do sound familiar, don't they? Right. And, and, and Islam, not one of you truly believes until you wish for others what you wish for yourself. The highest principles of so many of the world's faith traditions, and we're talking about religions that have gone back millennia, two, three, four, five thousand year old ways of thinking and believing, have embodied some of these deep principles. And it's these deep principles that perhaps United Religions is looking to hold up for one another to To uncover what they were really about Mm. at their core, or what their their, their highest principle. Uh, We have such... um, and how much this has promoted a kind of an animosity that is being promoted, it seems, between, for example, Islam and Christianity. Mm. 
that they're almost being pitted together against each other. Well, the media would have it be done that way sometimes, it seems, because that makes for good news and lots of good talk radio in some people's way of thinking. But they do not yet know what harm they do with promoting that kind of animosity. And it also simplifies down to sound bites, ideas that are much too large to fit into a button of a thought. What United Religions Initiative's stated purpose is, is to promote enduring daily interfaith cooperation, to end religiously motivated violence, and to create cultures of peace, justice, and healing for the earth and all living beings. Now, that kind of an idea can't be melted down into a soundbite that someone else can say, oh, that's all wrong. Because what is there in that that you would not have in your world? Right. Sure. So what are some things specifically that you see United Religions Initiative doing now, uh, perhaps nationally or globally or even locally, uh, some things you're working on? Well, let's look at some of the things that are happening in North America. And I, I say are happening because that's a present perfect tense verb because they're ongoing and they're always changing and evolving. One of the groups that I find most fascinating is in um, Orange County, California. This is a group of women called the Sarah Sisters, S-A-R-A-H. It's an acronym, and you'll find them through Google, I'm sure. Sarah sets out to build cooperation among different interfaith organizations in their area. And then they got wind of something called Big Sunday. Now, Big Sunday is something that the ecumenical approach, which, of course, is the different denominations within Christianity, had been working to have one day in May where their different denominations would work cooperatively to do community service, whether it be cleaning up a creek or providing food for a shelter or painting a a building that needed it uh, for the community. They were working together on this one day. Well, Sarah said, let's ramp that up to the next level. And they started contacting uh, Jewish synagogue, an Islam mosque, uh, some Wiccan sisters and brothers. They started looking at different faiths and their area and reaching out to them and saying, if we made it possible for you to be part of Big Sunday, would you come? Mm, There was a little discomfort. There was a little fear, of course. But yes, They said they would. Well, that was two, three years ago. In their first year of making this something beyond just ecumenical among Christians, they had paired up people of different faiths in teams, and they got into so much excited work together that when the next year came and they reached out to the same groups and said, would you be willing to do this again? They said, what do you mean, again? We've been doing it ever since last year. (laughs) They had found ways to bring their young people together. They had found ways to bring their Sunday schools together, to learn about each other's faith with mutual respect. They had each deepened their own roots in the process of getting to know one another better. So they discovered that's an interesting paradox, if that's the right word. They found out more about themselves by speaking with someone from a different religious tradition. They deepen their own spirituality. And that happens a lot, we find, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's certainly 
diametrically opposed to what some people think is the case about URI, which is, oh, united religions. And you must be trying to make one world religion. <laughs> Couldn't be further from the truth. Okay. Yeah. So in, in a sense, you're not making one world religion. No. You are uh, discovering the different religions in their diversity, in their integrity, allowing them to keep that. Mm-hmm and finding that in conversation, also finding a common humanity, perhaps. That's just it, looking for the common humanity and enabling and encouraging people to discover that is valued within themselves and therefore making it possible for it to be valued in their community. It starts at an individual level. It's so often that I find someone who says, oh, such and such about those people and such about them, about those that, that people of those religions, and I think, have you ever met someone of that faith? Oh, uh, no, uh, no, never have. Uh, I, I, we wouldn't mix with them. Let me introduce you to one. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then they meet. And then beyond that first gate of uh, 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 there comes curiosity, there comes exploration, there comes mutual excitement, there comes discovery. And what they're discovering is their world is larger than they thought it was, sometimes right in their backyard, literally. Right, right. Sandy Weston, it has been a delight to have you uh, with me on the program. Sandy Weston, uh, the North American Coordinator of United Religions Initiative. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, John. Sandy Weston served as the Regional Coordinator of United Religions Initiative, or URI, from July 2009 through December 2011. You can find more information about United Religions Initiative at uri.org. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS HD1 and WETS FM Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC Emory, Virginia. I'm John Shuck, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about our congregation at fpcelizabethton.org. A podcast and information about Religion for Life and upcoming programs and contact information for me are available at www.religionforlife.me, religionforlife.me. Be well.